All right, our scripture this morning is from 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verses 1 through 18. And Paul writes, are we beginning to commend ourselves again? Or do we need, as some do, letters of recommendation to you or from you? You yourselves are our letter of recommendation, written on our hearts to be known and read by all. And you show that you are a letter from Christ, delivered by us, written, not with ink, but with the spirit of the living God. Not on tablets of stone, but on the tablets of of our human hearts, such as the confidence that we have through Christ toward God. Not that we are sufficient in ourselves to claim anything as coming from us, but our sufficiency is from God, who has made us sufficient to be ministers of a new covenant, not of the letter, but of the Spirit. For the letter kills, but the Spirit gives life. Now, if the ministry of death carved in letters of stone came with such glory that the Israelites could not gaze at Moses' face because of its glory, which was being brought to an end, will not the ministry of the Spirit have even more glory? For if there was glory in the ministry of condemnation, the ministry of righteousness must far exceed it in glory. Indeed, in this case, what once had glory has come to have no glory at all because of the glory that surpasses it. For if what was being brought to an end came with glory, much more will what is permanent have glory. Since we have such a hope, we are very bold, not like Moses, who would put a veil over his face so that the Israelites might not gaze at the outcome of what was being brought to an end, But their minds were hardened, for to this day when they read the Old Covenant, that same veil remains unlifted, because only through Christ is it taken away. Yes, to this day, whenever Moses is read, a veil lies over their hearts. But when one turns to the Lord, the veil is removed. Now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. And we all, with unveiled face, behold the glory of the Lord. And being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. It's the Word of God. Tuesday, the forecast says it will be 79 degrees. Which means that all of us should be able to imagine... Warm weather. And so I would ask you right now to think for a moment of a hot day. Maybe you've been outside, maybe you've been mowing the lawn. And think for a moment of how thirsty you can be when it's hot. How dry your mouth might be. And how in that moment, what you long for more than anything is a cool glass of water. My prayer is that right now, in this service, all of us would long for the presence of God now and for future glory with the same intensity, the same distraction, the same desire 
that we long for water on a hot day. My prayer this morning is that we would seek the constant presence of God in our lives and long for future glory. Now, a sentence like that runs the risk of putting most of us to sleep. Because we are bad at imagining glory. It's hard to wrap your head around. It's hard. You can't touch it. You can't taste it. And yet, touch and taste and hunger, all of those things, in part, help us know what it means to experience the glory of God. Can I ask you, does God seem real to you right now? And if he does now in the context of a church service, and perhaps you've been blessed by their worship, and perhaps you've been blessed by prayer, does God seem real to you on Monday morning at 7 a.m.? Is he with you then? And my prayer is that this message from the word of God would make all of us hungry to experience him more. So no matter how much of him you have and enjoy, that you will never be satisfied that you will continue to seek him more and more. And I say that recognizing that the presence and glory of God might sound incredibly dull for some of us. Some people, I would hate is not too strong a word, some people hate the thought of heaven itself because they're convinced that it will be an eternity of terrible music with nothing to do. And that's not a stretch of the imagination if you know a lot of Christians. When I was in high school, I worked at the Hungry Howie's that's here in town, right down on Saginaw here. And the manager knew that both me and my brother were Christians. And so we talked about faith some just just as part of working the job there. And I will never forget that she very bluntly said that she did not want to go to heaven. Because she asked us, she said in a somewhat slightly embarrassed way, quietly, will there be sex in heaven? And we both shrugged and said, no, Jesus says that marriage doesn't exist in heaven, so I'm going to go out on a limb and say probably not. And then she said, well, I don't want to go. Can I just say that right now, the God that made sex and all the joys of marriage, an eternity spent in glory that he created, will not be disappointing by comparison. It will not be disappointing by comparison. And all the things that we enjoy now are tiny little hints of what it's like to enjoy God himself. I like to think of it My kids this week, uh, both of them, drew little lines in the sand and said, we will not eat what you have served us for dinner. So Tuesday, we had shepherd's pie. And it was covered with cheddar cheese, and it was baked so it was slightly crispy on top. And under that was a layer of creamy mashed potatoes. And I like lumps in my potatoes because it lets you know that the potatoes are real. And there was just the right amount of salt and just perfect amount of pepper. And underneath that was a layer of vegetables. So we felt like it was healthy. 
And then underneath that was a layer of ground beef that was perfectly seasoned. And I love a good shepherd's pie. And Rosie looked at me across the table and said she would not eat it. The problem was not with the shepherd's pie. The problem was she had no capacity to love it because she hadn't had it. And so she decided ahead of time, like someone who's never experienced the glory of God, that she wanted nothing to do with it. And I believe that's our problem as well. Our biggest problem is that we don't understand glory. And so this morning in Exodus 24, the passage where we're at today in Exodus, the entire nation of Israel experiences the glory of God. They see it from afar. And right away, when you read this chapter, it seems so unreal You're tempted to keep moving until you can get to something that's more engaging. But I want to beg you this morning to pause and recognize the incredible wonder of what they experienced. And that you and I can experience the same thing. And we can look forward to a future that is even more glorious. God, the redeemer of his people, had given Israel his law. He rescued them from Egypt. He taught them about his character. He helped them know what was right and what was wrong by giving him his law. And now in chapter 24, the people of God make a sacred promise to obey God's commandments and they seal that promise with a covenant and then they see his glory tangibly, visibly. And this morning, we're going to see three things from this chapter. We're going to see a bloody promise. We're going to see... And we're going to see a cloud of glory... And each of these things will help us realize how we can live in God's presence and look forward to future glory. And and just as we approach the text, as we read it, let me pray for us now that we would see this. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we will not see this unless your Holy Spirit is at work. And so I ask that he would work now in our hearts, that we would desire you more and more. Open our eyes to see your beauty in your word. And I pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. So read with me Exodus chapter 24, verses 1 through 8. God is speaking. Verse 1, Then he said to Moses, Come up to the Lord, you and Aaron, Nadab and Abihu, and seventy of the elders of Israel, and worship from afar. Moses alone shall come near to the Lord, but the others shall not come near, and the people shall not come up with him. Moses came and told the people all the words of the Lord and all the rules. And all the people answered with one voice and said, All the words that the Lord has spoken, we will do. And Moses wrote down all the words of the Lord. He rose early in the morning and built an altar at the foot of the mountain, and twelve pillars according to the twelve tribes of Israel. And he sent young men of the people of Israel who offered burnt offerings and sacrificed peace offerings of oxen to the Lord. And Moses took half the blood and put it on the basins, and half of the blood he threw against the altar. Then he took the book of the covenant and read it in the hearing of the people. And they said, all that the Lord has spoken, we will do, and we will be obedient. And Moses took the blood and threw it on the people and said, behold, the blood of the covenant that the Lord has made with you in accordance with all these words. 
So the first thing we read about this morning is a bloody promise. Verse 1 of this chapter shows us that everything that happens here is worship. We come here for a worship service this morning. That's what they had in Exodus chapter 24. They had a reading of Scripture. The people responded to the reading of Scripture by committing themselves to it. Then they share a fellowship meal and they experience the glory of God. All of these are described by God as worship and I pray that they experienced in our church regularly. But to begin with, The first thing that I want to focus on is the people of God agree twice in these verses to keep all of God's laws so that they enjoy his promised blessing. And they seal that promise with a sacrifice. You may remember before we began our study in Exodus, we spent a few weeks looking at Genesis where this story has its start. Where God promised Abraham that he would bless the entire nation and the entire world through Abraham's family. And in sealing that promise, God made a covenant with Abraham. And so we talked about the covenant sacrifices and the ancient customs of two parties coming together and forming an agreement and sealing it with a sacrifice and a meal. And you see both of those things here. You know, today, when I was a little kid, I've heard that kids can't get away with saying this kind of thing anymore, but when I was a little kid, we used to say things like, cross my heart, hope to die, put a needle in my eye. That's actually not a bad illustration of what a covenant promise is. It's a promise that says, if I do not keep this promise, these terrible things will happen to me. Both in Genesis and in here, the sacred promise of two parties was sealed with blood. And part of the meaning of these sacrifices is they are graphic warnings of the consequence of breaking the covenant. This means that God takes his law very, very seriously. And that breaking God's law is deadly. But here in Exodus, there's actually even more That's part of the text here. The sacrifices here are very specific. They offer burnt offerings and peace offerings. And burnt offerings were totally consumed. None of the animal was left. It was used to atone for sin. And the sacrifice said, we recognize we have sinned. And this animal is bearing the punishment for that sin. And it is totally consumed. The peace offerings, on the other hand, were not sacrificed to make peace. You might think you've offended a neighbor and so you bake some chocolate chip muffins and take them over so that animosity becomes peaceful friendship again. That's not a biblical peace offering. That's a sin offering where you try to cover something with a gift, with a sacrifice. A biblical peace offering is a celebration of Peace. And so two parties that were at war come together and share a meal and celebrate harmony. Part of the animal is sacrificed on the altar because God shares in that fellowship meal. But most of the animal was eaten by the priests and by the people who were bringing the sacrifice. And so the meaning of this passage is clear. As the people come to God, in order to approach him... Sin must be paid for. And so they sacrifice a burnt offering that's totally consumed. But through the mercy of God, our sin, the breaking of God's law, can be covered. And so we celebrate peace 
with him. And that's what these elders do in the presence of God. And they have a divine feast with God. And so this morning, we've seen a bloody promise first in verses 1 through 8. Now let's look at a divine feast in verses 9 through 11. Read with me. Then Moses and Aaron, Nadab and Abihu, and 70 of the elders of Israel went up, and they saw the God of Israel. There was under his feet, as it were, a pavement of sapphire stone like the very heaven for clearness. And he did not lay his hand on the chief men of the people of Israel, and they beheld God and ate and drank. Meals were as much a part of covenants as sacrifices were. The peace that was made through the covenant promises was then celebrated in a meal afterwards. And that's what happens here. You may think of Psalm 23, a very familiar passage of scripture. David says, you prepared a table before me in the presence of my enemies. That table is a celebration of peace between two people who had been at war, but now they come together and celebrate harmony. Not just the absence of conflict, but a party, a celebration, a joyful feast, a friendship. David says they're celebrating peace with that table. We understand the value of eating meals together every year at Thanksgiving. We have a national feast where we should celebrate God's goodness to us, where we recognize that we are depending on him. And we do that with turkey and mashed potatoes and pumpkin pie. Those are tangible reminders of God's goodness to us. And feasting is still part of how we give thanks to God. This is what the elders of Israel were doing. But the staggering thing is, they were eating this meal in the presence of God in a way that you or I have not experienced. The text says they saw him with their eyes. And yet they were not consumed. This is possible because they had been covered by the blood of the covenant. And so for a little while, they enjoyed the real presence of God, as they understand what it's going to mean for God's glory to dwell in the middle of them as the people of God. You might have a lot of questions reading a passage like this. And there's another passage in Ezekiel where Ezekiel also sees the presence of God and describes a sapphire floor. And the reality is, we don't know a whole lot from this text of what that vision was like. But we know that they enjoyed God's presence in their midst, but it was partial and it was temporary. They finished their meal and went down the mountain. But notice that the glory that Moses experiences next is even greater than sharing a meal near the presence of God from a distance. Look with me at the cloud of glory that Moses experiences in verses 12 through 18. So the Lord said to Moses, Come up to me on the mountain and wait there that I may give you the tablets of stone with the law and the commandments, which I have written for their instruction. So Moses rose with his assistant Joshua and Moses went up into the mountain of God. And he said to the elders, wait here for us until we return to you. And behold, Aaron and Hur are with you. Whoever has a dispute, let him go to them. 
Then Moses went up on the mountain, and the cloud covered the mountain. And the glory of the Lord dwelt on Mount Sinai, and the cloud covered it six days. And on the seventh day, he called to Moses out of the midst of the cloud. Now the appearance of the glory of the Lord was like a devouring fire on top of the mountain in the sight of the people of Israel. And Moses entered the cloud and went up on the mountain. And Moses was on the mountain 40 days and 40 nights. As part of this passage, God provides his law written in stone for the people as part of this covenant. And this also is part of every ancient covenant. Two people that were at war came together and as they agreed on specific covenant promises, they wrote them down so that they would have them to refer to. So in the future, if someone broke the covenant, you could point to the written record and say, this is the law that you did not keep. And that's what God does for his people. He writes his record down in stone and gives it to his people as a permanent witness to his law. The agreement had to be preserved so that both parties understood it and were faithful to it. But when God gives the stone tablets to Moses, Moses spends 40 days in the midst of the cloud of God's glory. The elders saw that glory from a distance as they ate, but Moses is surrounded by it, caught up in it. And God's glory is so intense that when he comes down from the mountain, his face shines and the people can't even bear to look at the reflection of God's glory because it's so powerful. That glory is hard to describe in a way that's attractive. This passage, like many others, describe God's glory as a blazing fire. So picture for a second, picture for a second the most beautiful, the most brilliant sunset you have ever seen in your life. Close your eyes, and with the best imagination you have, picture a vivid sunset. And with all its radiant glory, I believe if you imagine that sunset and then compare it to the irritating, lifeless lights of a hospital hospital room where, where it's just fluorescent and the walls are a dirty gray. It's the last place on earth that you think of when you think of glory. So you've got a sunset that's radiant and brilliant and you want to take pictures of it and you want to you look at it for the rest of your life and you've got a dingy hospital room that's ugly That no one wants to be in. I believe. That the sunset. Is to God's glory. What the hospital room is to the sunset. Are you with me? So you love the picture of a sunset. You want to look at it. You want to show it to people. You want to enjoy that. I believe looking at God's glory. Is so much greater. That a sunset by comparison. Seems like you're flat on a back. Staring at a fluorescent light in a hospital room. The presence of God's glory is something that's so rich and so sweet that you never want to leave it. And I don't think 40 days was long enough for Moses. And that is the future that we have to look forward to in the presence of God covered by the blood of Jesus. Now, you you might ask, what does this have to do with me? Here is the here's the answer. Here's why this passage of Scripture matters for you and me today. We approach God by the exact same pattern. But the covenant that we have with God is better. That's why we read from 2 Corinthians chapter 3. Because Paul is saying that the covenant that was written in stone 
does not compare with the covenant that we have with the Spirit of God in us. And the glory that Moses had is nothing compared to the glory that you and I have to look forward to in the future. So I want to take just a brief moment and look at each of those three things in our context as believers in Jesus. So number one, the covenant. The bloody promise that Israel made with God where they sacrificed, they sacrificed uh, cows and they sacrificed goats, that was broken. And God judged them just as he said he would. But, but notice this. Just read the Old Testament. You can read about God's judgment on them for breaking his covenant promises. But here's the thing. Think of a passage like Isaiah 53. Think of, think of Good Friday and recognize this. The blood that covered the people and the threat of judgment that was symbolized in those sacrifices as those animals were butchered and taken apart and burnt. Recognize this. All of that violence happened to Jesus Christ. When the promises that Israel made to God were not kept, God sent His Son to bear the punishment for breaking the covenant. And not only for Israel, but also for the sin of the entire world. He was beaten, He was whipped, and He was crucified as if He had broken the covenant when He was the only one who ever kept it. And now, because He took the full fury of God He institutes a new covenant for us. That's why when you think about communion in the passages we read from the Gospels and from 1 Corinthians, Jesus says, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. He's saying, my blood is the the beginning of new peace with God. And it's even greater than the Old Covenant because even better promises are given to us. Hebrews is a whole book dedicated to that topic that the sacrifice is better. A cow can't cover sin, but Jesus can. The promises are better. The presence of God in Israel was always limited and partial. But the presence of God in the life of a believer now is greater than that. And the future glory that we have can't even be imagined. That's why the biggest danger that we have is like little Rosie who can't imagine how good shepherd's pie is. We don't know what we're in for and so it doesn't seem attractive. But it will not be disappointing. That's the covenant that we have through the blood of Christ. That he made peace with God through us. And our failures cannot break that covenant because not only did he make a sacrifice for us, but he gave us his righteousness and his obedience so that he will see us through all the way to glory. And so we enjoy a divine feast as well. We have never eaten a meal directly with God as this, but recognize this in the new covenant, the disciples did. They are very much like the elders that went before God and ate in his presence. The scripture says, Jesus said, if you have seen me, you have seen the father and all of the disciples enjoyed being in his presence and shared that meal with him. And we continue to remember the presence of Jesus through communion. We are more like the Israelites who did not go directly to the mountain, but we have heard from those who did. And yet I do want to mention that there are some very important ways that we do celebrate God's presence regularly. I'm going to give you three. First, we should on a daily basis 
seek the presence of God by reading and listening to the scriptures in a deliberate and a planned way. The Apostle Peter said this to some Christians who had never seen Jesus face to face. I'm going to give you the reference if you want to look at this later. It's 1 Peter chapter 1. I'm going to read you verses 8 and 9. So 1 Peter 1, 8 and 9. Peter says this, Though you have not seen him, you love him. Emotionally, you long for him. You recognize his goodness. You enjoy him. And now he says, though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Now think for a second about those words, rejoicing and joy that is Full of glory. Think for a second if, if you've ever been engaged or if you've known someone who has been engaged. The excitement of that promise. I remember when I proposed to Lauren on the way home. She called her family and she called her friends. And she had to share that because she was so excited and full of joy and happiness. We have something even greater in Christ. We have peace with God. And because of that, our daily experience with him, even though we have never seen him, should be full of joy and glory and that rejoicing and that continued belief, Peter says, is obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. He describes that as an ongoing and continued thing. Salvation continues to be at work in you as you look to Jesus, which means that you should not look to Jesus once and then forget that he exists. You should look to him again and again and again constantly. Peter says, Christians who have never seen God with their physical eyes can experience joy filled with glory by faith. And you and I can have that joy now as we believe in Christ. And one of the easiest and best ways to help you grow in that joy is to seek Jesus in the scriptures constantly. Recognize God's presence with you and ask him to open your eyes as you read the scriptures. Second, the second way that we experience a divine feast, we are doing right now as we gather as the church, seeking the presence of God. The scriptures teach that the Holy Spirit is present in the church in a special way. Yes, each of us have the Holy Spirit. Ephesians teaches that he is the seal of our salvation that God gives to us individually when we trust in Christ. But the Holy Spirit is present in the church together in a special way when we gather. And, and I want to encourage you, take a moment right now, Look around at the faces that are around you here in the church. Think about the people that you know believe in Christ here. Do you believe that God is here in a special way because we as believers are gathered to worship him? This is something that people sometimes miss. Sometimes people believe, you know, I have Jesus, I listen to the radio, I listen to, to sermons online, that I'm fine, that I don't need the church, but that's not true. Not only are individuals the temple of the Holy Spirit, which is what Paul says in 1 Corinthians, but the whole church is the temple of God according to Ephesians, which means that we need to gather together to experience his presence together in a special way. So you find passages, for example, like Acts chapter 13, where the whole church is praying and fasting together and the Holy Spirit moves the whole church together. And I long for that to happen. And I pray that that happens right now. And every time the church gathers, that the Holy Spirit would move in our hearts so that we would experience the presence and glory of God as a church. 
Third, we celebrate communion on a monthly basis. And we share a very small covenant meal that remembers the blood of Jesus for us. So that we can have peace with God. And especially in communion, we come before the Lord to examine ourselves and to give thanks to God. For his promises to us in Christ, promises that he will not punish us for our sins, promises of future glory that we will enjoy his presence. When we when we keep communion, our remembrance should not be full of sorrow, although we are sorry for our sins. But it should be a celebration of the peace that Jesus won for us so that we are welcomed into God's presence. And all of this daily seeking the Lord in his word, weekly coming together as a church, monthly coming together around the communion table to celebrate the body and blood of Jesus. All of this is how we enjoy God presently. But there is future glory that we haven't experienced yet. Peter says that right now you can be full of glory. But as we read in 2 Corinthians, as we behold Christ, meaning We see him with eyes of faith in the pages of scripture and trust his promises are true for us. As we look to Jesus Christ, we begin to reflect the glory of God in stages until one day we have the same glory. One day we will see him face to face and the Bible says we will be transformed in a moment and we will be with the Lord forever. And when we preach the gospel of Jesus Christ, we are not preaching That you have to do things to be right with God. That's what Israel was under obligation to do. We preach that Jesus did it all. We recognize that we have broken God's law and deserve God's punishment. But Jesus not only covers our sin. He changes us so that one day we will be like him. And we will always keep God's law perfectly. Because our hearts will be completely changed. That's why Paul says that the letter kills, but the Spirit gives life. Because the Spirit makes you want to keep God's law. And that's why one day we will experience a kind of glory that even Moses never saw. And if all of that sounds boring or weird to you, recognize this. There is a reason that there was a feast in the middle of a covenant. Because there is a joy and blessing when we come to God. It's better than the greatest Thanksgiving in the world with all of your family there. Recognizing sweet pumpkin pie and turkey. That does not compare To the glory of coming into the presence of God and enjoying a feast with him. We have to recognize that God who gives us good gifts is greater than those gifts. A giver is always greater than the gift. C.S. Lewis once said, our desires are not too strong, but they are too weak. We are tempted to think that we can't overcome sin because we desire it so much. Especially if you're caught up in addiction. But the reality is, God has offered something infinitely better than the sin that never satisfies, and we don't long for it enough. The scripture says that at God's right hand are pleasures forevermore. Do do you believe that? Do you long to be in God's presence? If you don't believe that, recognize this. You remember my manager's question at the beginning of this sermon? Recognize this. Paul says in Ephesians that marriage is a picture of Christ and the church. So think for a second, if that's true, and it is, 
then it means that meditating on marriage in all of its joys, which, by the way, is what the Old Testament book Song of Solomon is for. It's a meditation on marriage in all of its joys. That is an invitation to understand the glory of heaven, which begins with a wedding feast. Sometimes it's tempting to think of God as an angry God who just wants to punish sin. But the glory of heaven begins with a wedding party. And who doesn't want to go to a wedding party? God is holy and his holiness will always punish sin. But anger and wrath do not define God. Let us remember that the future glory that waits for us is awesome. And let us anticipate it with real hope. So if you're here today, And you don't desire God. If, as I've said, it's hard to imagine glory and the presence of God seems boring and dull, if you can raise your hand and say, that's me, that's that's how I feel on a daily basis, I want to urge you to do something right now. I'm going to lead us in prayer in just a second, but I would encourage you to confess that as sin. It means that you love things other than God more than God. And I want to encourage you to talk to him about that and just be honest. So much of the scriptures is honest confession of things like that, where David says, God, where are you? I don't experience you and I miss you and I want you. So if that's you, let me encourage you to call out to him, to confess that, recognize it as sin and to forsake it. And let me encourage you to begin to seek him more and more. If you don't know how to seek him, I would love to help you. If you struggle with reading the scriptures, I can help you get better at reading the scriptures. If you struggle in prayer, I would love to help you grow in prayer. Would you be willing to talk to me either today or to call me this week and say, I want to grow. I want to know God more and better. And I don't know how. If you say you don't know how, would you commit now to taking a step to fixing that problem? And if you're here today and you don't know the Lord, would you trust him? The reality is that we can have peace with God through the blood of Jesus. And the Lord invites you to enjoy him forever. Would you trust him? Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, I ask that your Holy Spirit would work right now through your word. I pray that you would draw us closer to you. That we would desire you more. And I pray that we would find satisfaction and joy in you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.